0: Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Shivani, and I'm Lauren, and we are very
1: excited to have Bob Whittaker, an award-winning journalist, joining us here today. Robert Whittaker is the author of five books, three of which tell the history of psychiatry. His latest book on the history of psychiatry, co-written with Lisa Cosgrove, is Psychiatry Under the Influence: Institutional Corruption, Social Injury, and Prescriptions for Reform. In his Athenaeum talk. Bob Whitaker will discuss the epidemic of mental illness in the U.S. and whether the cure, psychotropic drugs, might actually contribute to the cause.
0: Welcome to the show, Bob. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure (laughs) being here. So just to kick things off, uh, first and foremost, again, thank you for joining us. Um, so every single story has a beginning, uh, and we'd love to kick off our show with learning about yours. Um, you were once sitting here in our position as a student uh, and trying to figure out what you were going to do. So what inspired you to take on the issues surrounding mental health um, and the use of psychiatric medications? And you know just The journalism around that, what inspired you to pursue it?
2: Well, that's a great question. Uh, If we go back when I was sitting in college, I had no idea what I was going to do. (laughs) None whatsoever, just so you know that. And I had this vague idea at that time that writing uh, fiction at that time was a way to sort of explore the the world. So I had, actually I was not a journalist coming out of college. It was a second career after I failed at being a fiction writer, to be honest with you. And sometimes, uh, uh, to be honest with you, again, um, fate chooses your subject, okay? It's not like that you choose it. So for example, I had no interest in psychiatry, no particular interest. But in 1988, I began covering medicine for the Albany Times Union, okay? So I began, that begins where I focused on medicine and science. Then I spent a time at uh, Harvard Medical School as director of publications where uh, this was in the early 90s. I became very interested in evidence-based medicine, right? That was sort of the, the talk of the day. Then, uh, the point of this is this is all a complete accident. <laughs> <laughs> it's really the story here. The best things are. Uh, then I actually left daily journalism, and I formed a publishing company called Center Watch, which focused on the business aspects of developing new drugs, okay? It sort of got it was more of a business publication. Anyway, while I was doing that, um, it, I we had this publication, it became obvious to us that clinical trials are new drugs, that drugs companies were testing these new drugs. You think of it as a scientific enterprise, are the drugs better than placebo? And now that we sort of got inside the industry, we saw that in fact, so often they were marketing enterprises. They would design the trials to produce a result that would help their drug be successful Mm -hmm. in the marketplace. And it seemed in particular that this was being done in psychiatry. Okay, and psychiatry has very fungible outcome measures that makes it easier to do. And the f- real class of drugs that I became interested in, where there was this sort of use of trial design to tell a story, was around what are called the atypical antipsychotics, drugs like Zyprexa, uh, Risperdal, and they came in in the big 90s, and they were said to be so much safer and more effective than the old drugs. Mm-hmm. And they cost like 10, 20 times as much. So that was the story even appearing in the scientific literature, but I just pulled the FDA reviews of those drugs, and in in that document, you saw a very different story. Mm -hmm. You saw, for example, people dying in those trials, and yet the report would be there were no serious adverse offense, and in fact, like, one out of every 145 people who entered the atypical trials died, Wow! but that just is missing from the literature. So I got into this sort of as a, a sense of corruption within this process of tri- trials of new drugs that is so important for the mm-hmm. health of our country, that mm-hmm. they be done honestly and that they be reported honestly in the scientific literature as well. And then what happened, so I I, <clears throat> I, I thought that was an abuse of psychiatric patients, because here are people volunteering f- for the public good, to test a drug, and yet... The trials, first of all, were, desi- were biased by design, the FDA said, against the old drugs. So mm-hmm. now they're, they're volunteering for a corrupt process. And the very fact that they didn't report the death seemed to be a betrayal as well. So uh, I did this series for the Boston Globe. I continued to sort of freelance, even when I had this uh, publication. And I said, I'll do a story uh, series on the abuse of psychiatric patients in research settings. And this was one of the things we looked about. I had no interest in going further than this in psychiatry at all. But while I was doing that series, now I had a conventional understanding of psychiatry and antipsychotics. My conventional understanding was that we're making this great progress in treating mental disorders. We have these new drugs better than the old ones, that sort of thing, this ladder of medical progress. But when I did that series, um, and here's what's important. We We looked at the corruption in the trials of the atypicals, but we also looked at studies where they had withdrawn antipsychotics from schizophrenia patients, and we said that's unethical. Mm -hmm. These drugs are like insulin for diabetes. You would never withdraw insulin from a diabetic, so why'd you run these studies? I was rewarded for that series. It was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and yet by the time it appeared, I thought I had screwed up. And here's why I thought I maybe had screwed up, is just towards the end, I came upon two studies that, that really challenged that conventional wisdom that antipsychotics were a necessary good for people with schizophrenia. One was a study done by, uh, studies done by the World Health Organization, mm-hmm. which twice found that outcomes, they ran a study where they compared outcomes in three developing countries, India, Nigeria, and Colombia, okay. with outcomes in the U.S. and six rich countries. And both times, here's what they found that the outcomes were much better in the poor countries. That if you're diagnosed with schizophrenia, you'll do much better in India or Nigeria at this time. Wow. And listen to this. This is where the light bulb, the curiosity was really yeah. to spark it. They said, living in a developed country, this is the World Health Organization, is a strong predictor that you won't do well if you're diagnosed with schizophrenia. And I'm like, why would living in a rich country be a predictor that you're gonna have a poor outcome? And it seemed like a mystery deserving of further investigation. Absolutely. And the other thing was, was that there was a study done by Harvard researchers that looked at longer term outcomes in the US and other Western countries over the past hundred years, and here's what they reported in 1994. Outcomes had gotten worse in the last 15 years, and they were now no better than in the first third of the 20th century, Mm -hmm. when they were putting people under showers and stuff. So, think about where I'm at at this moment. (laughs) I've just told a story about, that really is a story of progress, antipsychotics are so essential to schizophrenia. And now I come upon research that questions that. So really I got into this out of that curiosity.
0: Absolutely. And also
2: this sense that maybe there was a a prevailing narrative out there and maybe there was some other narrative to be uncovered. So it was a curiosity thing.
0: Right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And just out of curiosity, when you came across that study um, that compared the less developed countries to the developed countries, Did it say, did it speak to how the less developed countries go about treating schizophrenia? That's
2: a great question. That's obviously what you're going to ask. So why (laughs) is the difference, right? So I call people up and they say, why do they do better in the poor countries? What's up? And they said, well, we don't really know, but we think that maybe it's because they're uh, nicer to people with schizophrenia in the poor countries, or maybe... They keep them in the family more, family structure, they're less industrialized, that sort of thing. And, but no one really had an answer, mm-hmm. and I wasn't particularly convinced by that answer. Yeah. So I really read the studies carefully. One was like 95 pages. So there's two studies. Mm-hmm. One was uh, five years in length, and one was two years in length. And after the first study, which was five years in length, the researchers were surprised by this, because it was Western researchers who did this. They said, they're stunned. Why yeah. should our, people have worse outcomes. So they hypothesized, maybe the reason for better outcomes in the poor countries is the patients are more medication compliant. They take their antipsychotics regularly. Mm. Now, that's a valid hypothesis. If the drugs are supposed to be essential to the treatment of schizophrenia, then compliance should lead to better outcomes, right? Right. So they looked at compliance in the second study, and here's what they found. In the poor countries, they use the drugs differently. They used them acutely, but not chronically. They Mm. weren't keeping their patients on the antipsychotics.
0: So short-term versus long-term Yeah, exactly.
2: So in the poor countries, India and Nigeria in particular, something like only like 10% of the patients were regularly, in those two countries, regularly maintained on the medications. Whereas in the rich countries, that's the standard of care. This was part of the curiosity. So I understood that antipsychotics were absolutely essential, Mm -hmm. right? And then suddenly I am presented, with these studies done by the World Health Organization, where longer term outcomes are better in poor countries where they're using the drugs differently. Right. That was part of my curiosity mm-hmm. as well. So, so the answer was, it's still a mystery.
0: <laughs> mystery continues. So something that I've always been interested in, um, and you spoke to this briefly, is that these documents were available. So there was an access of information, um, and yet you know your reporting definitely was probably the most innovative of the time in terms of, of this problem. So where or in your own opinion where were journalists when this issue needed to be reported or what what was the access of information and was it being shrouded from the public
2: here's a, this is that's another great question these are really important questions because it goes to how does the public get informed right. about medical findings and scientific findings as a as a journalist it's an odd thing so initially if i go back i wasn't always covering medicine and science okay? mm-hmm. initially covered well, I started in a small paper in upstate New York, and the great thing about a small paper is you cover everything, business, politics, and whatever else might be happening in the town, crime. Um, and as a journalist, when you cover politics or cover business, the idea is you're going to be skeptical of those you interview. Right. You're gonna be thinking, now oh, they're telling me a story that makes them look good as politicians or businessmen mm-hmm. or whatever. And that I can go to documents to see if if I can find documents, to see if they're telling me the truth, right. okay? So there's a sense you don't just rely on the person you interview. When you become a medical reporter, it changes. You know what they tell you when you become a medical reporter? What do you think they tell you?
0: Trust the science?
2: Yes, these are the people who are the experts. You mm-hmm. can't really know. Yeah. Your job is to translate the science, not Aww. cover science, to translate the science uh, for public understanding. Mm-hmm. So now what you're literally doing is, is, you go to the, quote, thought leaders, the experts, and ask them about their findings. You're not even trained to go to the, the documents. Wow! You're not trained to go see what they published and see if what they're telling you wow. is the same as what the document says. And you're certainly not, so the first step would just be to go to the scientific mm-hmm. literature, right? Yeah. The next step would be to go, like in this case, to the FDA reviews and right. see if they're consonant with what was done. So the point is, this is one of the problems we have, is medicine is a business too, Yeah. okay? And even science has its business aspects. Mm -hmm. People are chasing grants, they're chasing money, this whole thing. Medicine really became a business, and psychiatry became the poster boy for a, uh, or poster child for a medical discipline that really got captured by industry, by pharmaceutical companies paying the thought leaders. So I go and ask uh, someone from Harvard, or from Johns Hopkins, and he's a professor of psychiatry. He tells me something, right? That person has extraordinary uh, credibility in society. He's the one that is the uh, shaman in our society, so to speak. Mm. He's the keeper of the wisdom. So who am I to question? And who am I even now, as a journalist, to go to his own study and say, "But wait a minute, that's not what you're saying in this study"? I mean. What you're telling me now is not what you really found. Right. I'm not really expected to challenge the experts mm-hmm. because I'm supposed to be too stupid to read the science, basically. And I definitely am not supposed to go digging in the FDA data. What happened for me was this. Go back to that moment um, uh, in the 90s. When I'm, 98, I'm doing this series for the Boston Globe. First of all, even before, when I had that company, I began to see the experts who were filing stories were getting paid by drug companies to do the studies and then they were getting paid to give talks on the results as well. So all of a sudden I see that these experts, these thought leaders in our society have this conflict of interest, okay? Because they're getting paid in essence to test drugs and promote those drugs. So right away with that company I began, we began to report on how so often actually, even before I got into psychiatry, the results that were being promoted to the public were at odds with the science. So I'd already been trained now to start going to the FDA to see really what the data mm-hmm. said. But going back to nineteen ninety eight, you know the chemical imbalance story theory of mental disorders? Yes. That low serotonin causes depression. Right. So what do you think of that? Is it true?
0: I wouldn't have the science background to negate that. But if you heard it I would accept it as true. Yeah.
2: Okay eighty What's the last thing? Eighty percent of Americans now know that uh, mental disorders are caused by chemical imbalances. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's what I believed. Mm-hmm. So in 1998, one of the things we do is we do uh, on ethical abuses of story studies where they withdraw antipsychotics. We said these are like insulin for diabetes. You should never withdraw insulin from a diabetic. So why would you withdraw an antipsychotic from a, a, a psychotic patient? Someone with a psychotic disorder. So I write this. They're like insulin for diabetes. Blah blah blah. And then. After the series ran, when I see these other studies, I start questioning everything. So I call up experts, the thought leaders. I say, can you just point me where you found that schizophrenia is due to too much dopamine? Mm-hmm. Or where you found that depression is due to too little serotonin? And here's what the first guy says. And he was like former head of the a- a- American Psychiatric Association. He says, well, that's not really true. I said, what do you mean it's not really true? He says, it's a metaphor. And I said, I understand like, insul- uh, like you know, insulin for diabetes is a metaphor or a simile, whatever you want to call it. But where did you find that people with depression had low serotonin? I just want to read the research. Where did you find that people with schizophrenia had overactive dopamine systems? I said, well, we didn't really find it. Like, what are you talking about? I-, I interviewed 15 people. They all told me this. They said, it's just a metaphor to get people to understand why the drugs are good for them. We really didn't find it. And I didn't believe it. So now I call someone else up. Uh, No, we didn't really find it. And then I start looking in the textbooks. 2000, Essential Psychopharmacology, Stephen Stahls, he says, serotonin is a monoamine. We've hunted for a monoamine deficit for 30 years. We haven't found it. There is no real monoamine deficit. 2005, Kenneth Kendler, uh, uh, who's co-director in chief of psychological medicine, big guy in the the hunt for chemical imbalances. Here's what he says. We have hunted for big, simple uh, chemical, deficiencies and have not found them wow so you have the public being told one story you go to the science it's another so you ask the question why aren't journalists doing this why aren't they pretty pretty simple right here's the reason is it's because of the power structure around medicine and science Mm, if you start uh, being a reporter who is challenging conventional wisdom, they will attack you, right? And they will kill you, and they will isolate, you, kill you, metaphorically, um, and they'll treat you as a heretic. So you, you, and the, basically the, the, the editors don't know who are they mm. going to believe? What, some they don't have time to look at the documents or yeah. that sort of thing. So you become isolated from your own profession, right? And you become seen as, and the, they they will say, oh, he's biased or he has some, you know, he's anti-psychiatry. It's nonsense, but the point is in this field, it's really tough to break with the conventional wisdom because we are not taught to treat science and medicine as a a corruptible enterprise or a a possible flawed enterprise. It's up there on Mount Olympus, Mm -hmm. and we're just supposed to take the words and interpret them for the public below Right. but the problem is it leads to misinformation a public that's misinformed and the chemical imbalance story is the the exact example of this All right yeah. where you have uh, uh, drug use based on a belief uh, and it's a belief that even tells you that you're something defective in your brain you have to take these drugs forever and then you go to the science it's not there mm-hmm. and here's how f- completely the chemical imbalance story has fallen apart just to show you this unbelievable divergence Uh, Ronald Pies is a former editor in chief of Psychiatric Times, which is sort of a trade publication Mm. of the American Psychiatric Association. The chemical balance story has fallen so far apart, uh, you know, so it's fallen apart so to such a degree. It's just been said that we didn't find this in scientific circles. Now psychiatry has to answer itself. Why did the public? Why were they told this? So what psychiatry is saying that was the drug company's fault, not ours. We never said this. So literally I could point you to a blog written by uh, Ronald Pies saying the chemical imbalance hypothesis is a kind of urban legend, mm-hmm. never a theory seriously propounded by well-informed psychiatrists. But as a, I've had some dialogue with Ronald Pies, I said, okay, fine, you know you're right. It did fall apart. I'll, I'll tell you another anecdote here in a <laughs> second. It did fall apart 25 years ago, but I think you forgot to tell the American people that. Yeah. And he said, Well, we could have done a better job. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. I feel like that's always the cycle back of everyone. They're just like, Oh, eh, we could have done better. Yeah.
2: Quick anecdote on this. So after this book, Anatomy of an Epidemic came out, it did make a splash, okay? So I was asked to do a grand rounds at Massachusetts Hospital with Psychiatry Department. And there were some people in the audience <laughs> who had been named in ways as taking a lot of money from pharmaceutical companies and so there was a little bit of a sense they were trying to you know, metaphorically kill me. <laughs> but one of the things they said is, you know, you, in your book, you, you, helped, you created this straw man. You made it look like we told people that they had chemical imbalances. And they had this, so I presented, it and there was this rebuttal by Andrew Nuremberg. And he says, uh, we knew that that was an outdated hypothesis 25 years ago. And your book here is in 2010 and making it look like we promoted this. So he's saying I I, I misreported Mm -hmm. that psychiatry had never said about low serotonin. And so I got up and said, I said this, you know, you're right. Scientifically, the low serotonin theory had been discredited by 1987. You're right. You did know that. But I went again. I said, you're the thought leaders. You're the spokesman. So if 80% of Americans now know that uh, low serotonin is due to depression, you failed the American public. And I said, I go talk to um, patient groups all the time, and I'll ask, how many of you were told when you were diagnosed you had a chemical imbalance? How many hands do you think go up in the room?
1: The majority, I imagine. Uh, It used to be every hand in the room. Yeah.
2: So anyway, this is part of the the difficulty with journalism in this, in this, in this this area, and when you cover science and medicine, it is tough.
0: Mm -hmm. So you you spoke to you know basically. That entire narrative was about you know corruption you had seen, um, and basically battling that while trying to you know inform the public community about what the, the actual situation is. Can you speak pre like briefly to the hierarchy of corruption that you encountered in terms of where does the pharmaceutical industry play into the medical community, and was there any sort of clear um, correlation between it?
2: Yeah, so this is what we really look at in uh, this last book, right. uh, Psychiatry Under the Influence, Under mm-hmm. the Influence of What? <coughs> <laughs> and it's really two things. It's pharmaceutical money and guild interests. Right. So psychiatry's story is both unique and uh, uh, illustrative of a larger problem. And I don't know if I should speak to the larger problem of the psychiatry problem, but it, within psychiatry, here's what happens so prior to 1980, they had a diagnostic manual that had a lot of psychological conceptions, Freudian influences, right? But in 1980, the American Psychiatric Association decides to reconceptualize uh, psychological problems of all sorts, psychiatric, psychological, whatever you want to call them, as medical diseases of the brain. And so we're we're not going to... So for example, you come to me as a psychiatrist in 1982, I'm not going to ask any longer what's happening in your life. Did you get divorced? Uh, did you lose a job? What your stresses are? Because they've reconceptualized depression as a brain disease. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm gonna just see if the, you have the symptoms of that brain disease, which are gonna be absent of any real inquiry. Now the minute I, as a profession, conceptualize something as a brain disease, who's very happy about that?
0: For any industry that- Pharmaceutical yeah, companies, yeah, that right? Yeah. Yeah. As, yeah. They, yeah. as the architect
2: of DSM-3, Robert Spitzer, said that pharmaceuticals are delighted. Because if you have a disease, you can now have a drug that knocks down the symptoms of those diseases, and you can get it approved Mm -hmm. for uh, treating that disease. Now, for example, in 1980, before we had this reconceptualization of depression, uh, Americans filled about 30 million prescriptions for antidepressants. They reconceptualized depression Mm -hmm. and now you get this explosion of use of the SSRIs. Now we're around 260, 270 million prescriptions a year. So, what happens in 1980? They reconceptualize it. Now, as a guild, uh, the American Psychiatric Association wants to tell this new conception of psychiatric disorders to the public. They have mm-hmm. a guild interest. But what happens to the pharmaceutical industry? They start spending, sending money to the American Psychiatric Association. They're now allowed to sponsor scientific uh, presentations at the annual meeting. They pay for this. But they don't give them, it's now, who's presenting the the science? It's people from Harvard. Mm -hmm. And now what we don't know, if we're in the audience, at this moment, is the guy giving the presentation, is it him who's done the science? Or is he getting paid by the, and how much is he getting paid by the pharmaceutical company? Well, now we know that the pharmaceutical company was paying, beginning in 1980, like $50,000 to give the symposium, and those symposiums were rehearsed. And now what happens is, the, the academic psychiatry is going to get captured by industry, because these guys now—it's women too, it's mm. men and women. <laughs> when I say guys. <laughs> anyway, men and women who have these academic psychiatry departments are now going to start see, speaking, serving as speakers, advisors, and consultants. Now, in their own mind, they don't say that I've been influenced by this. No one says I've been influenced. What yeah. I say is, I'm the smartest guy in this field. <laughs> And that's, they're paying me for my expertise. Mm -hmm. But the pharma companies saw it very differently. They saw, now we can bias trials by design. We can give money to the people who set the diagnostic constructs in psychiatry. They'll expand them. We'll give money to the people who do the clinical care guidelines. They'll say, use drugs first. So this whole bias began to uh, creep into the medical literature, psychiatric literature, where you have trials biased by design. Mm-hmm. You have adverse events are not looked for or hidden. You have trial results that are spun where trials that are negative, or uh, they'll be spun into positive results, and I can talk about that in a sense. So that's where we get this corruption of psychiatry because there's this commercial influence. and But the Guild itself wants to promote these ideas because it helps to have psychiatry, have dominion over these people. Mm-hmm. But it became a problem in other areas of medicine too where pharmaceutical companies promoting different drugs would hire the experts in the field to be speakers, advisors, and consultants. And that corrupted, compromised the medical literature, clinical care guidelines. Now, if you had the former editor of the New England Journal of Medicine or the former editor of the Journal of the American Medical Association or the former editor, I think Richard Smith is of British medical journal, Mm -hmm. and they were sitting here, they would be much more radical than I am they would be much more like you can't trust the medical literature, it became corrupted, it became tainted, mm-hmm. because they saw it from the inside. It, it, it's too bad they're not here, because they <laughs> would be much more rabid about this sort of betrayal of the American public. It's not just the American public. It becomes betrayal of a global public, right. because this medical literature is used not just by us.
1: Right, it permeates all. So, you know, you're giving us a sense that there really is this issue of institutional corruption that really does need to be addressed and you're raising this question is uh, are these medications really benefiting the patients or are they not so I guess kind of my question to you is through your research and through your works and things you're publishing is your goal to kind of raise awareness and change the way that the pharmaceutical industry um, works and interacts with the public or are you also trying to kind of spark discourse about how we could go about addressing mental health issues without medications or perhaps both kind of what are you really hoping will be kind of the end goal years into the future
2: um you know i think the corruption of medical literature by pharmaceutical companies now is pretty well known
1: Mm -hmm. yeah
2: and it moved into sort of mainstream medical criticism now so you'll see all sorts of articles documenting the bias uh documenting the compromised clinical care guidelines. So that's a well-known story now. I think when I was first writing about it in 1998 and all, it wasn't so well-known, but it is now. So really my uh, um, interest has really focused on this larger story of mental health treatment and diagnosis and and, and to provoke a discussion, that's for sure. (laughs) So here's what you see we have we got this new world in 1980 because it really did give us a new philosophy of being and the new philosophy of being was that um, you had all the psychological distress that could be now seen as diseases you had ADHD there was no ADHD before 1980 and so there was this sh- couple of things the way we see ourselves is different than it before before 1980. So for example, when, when I was a kid, we didn't have kids who were ADHD. We didn't have kids that were diagnosed with psychiatric diagnosis, it just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. We had goof-offs, <laughs> we had screw-ups, we had bullies, uh, we had nerds, we had a, a wide range of kids, but that was all seen as within the sort of different um, character types within a classroom, it wasn't pathologized. Now what happens, you all were raised in a very different environment. You were raised in an environment where what is seen as normal is much narrower. And you were trained to think of yourselves like if you felt distress or if you felt sadness or if you felt anxiety, that that was abnormal. Yeah. Now, when I was growing up, it was just understood that you're gonna be miserable a lot of the time and you're gonna be anxious, but you know, that's one of the things you gotta learn to cope with. It's a very different philosophy of being. Okay? Yeah. Um, and you see it, we, we have now something like 20% of our population taking a psychiatric drug on a daily basis. We have kids as young as two being medicated. I, I'd be interested to know in Claremont, in liberal arts schools in the Northeast, somewhere between 25 and 30% arrive with a diagnosis now. And wow. use of medication. About half will access mental health services during their time. This is all new. Mm-hmm. So w- why do I want a new discourse or a new discussion? We've been living this disease model of psychiatric disorders for 35 years, and all the uh, metrics, all the markers for the burden of mental illness in our society have gone way up. So the number of people disabled by mental illness has more than tripled during this time. Um, You see the mental health of children as measured, as youth, has gotten much worse during this time. There's a problem with early death now uh, with a lot of people. Bipolar used to be an infrequent disease. Now it's a very common diagnosis. So from a big picture societal point of view, you have a paradigm of care that is not diminishing the burden of mental illness in our society, not diminishing the um, stigma in our society. And we have organized ourselves frankly, around a false story. Mm-hmm. We've organized ourselves around a story that these are known brain diseases and that drugs fix chemical imbalances. So we have organized ourselves and we have organized the treating of our children around this false story. So here's what I'm hoping to continue to do. And I also run this website called Mad in America, which is sort of a hub for this is, what is science telling us about, what do we know about mental disorders? And, or what do we know about psychiatric distress? How does it evolve? That's number one. Two, is the prevailing narrative paradigm, is it based in science? And there's so much that tells you it is not, Mm. which means now you have to figure out a new paradigm, right, (laughs) and a new way. And then specifically about the drugs, here's the story about the drugs, what I believe is the story. They can be effective over the short term, okay? Uh, Meaning they knock down a target symptom better than placebo. There's some people do well on them long-term, okay, find them useful, but on the whole, in the aggregate, I'm pretty convinced science is telling us they worsen uh, the long-term course of disorders on, in the aggregate. In other words, they lower natural recovery rates. So for example, depression, what was the old course of even clinical depression, hospitalized depression? Mm-hmm. Well, it was seen as an episodic disorder, and if you go back to texts in the 60s and early 70s, government texts, they say this, 're going to get you're going to recover from a depressive episode but it can take time right but 80 85 percent of hospitalized depressed patients will be better by 12 months 15 months so the idea really was to use antidepressants to speed up a natural recovery process mm-hmm. but depression now runs a much more chronic course yeah people tend to become chronically depressed long term if you do studies where you look at people who get treated for milder depression mm-hmm. and look at those who go on drug versus those who uh, don't, um, and then I've even seen some time course, the people on drug do actually tend to have a greater remission of symptoms during the th- first three months. If you, if you just see their, but the unmedicated people are doing better as well. Right. So, so imagine we have a graph, and, and this is uh, level of s- symptoms, okay? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to have two arms. So this is the drug-treated group. This is the placebo group. So in fact, there's a sharper fall-off in the drug-treated group. But then what happens, the drug-treated group after about three months stops getting better, whereas the unmedicated group continues to get better. Mm-hmm. So, so often at the end of one year, you'll see the, not so often, as far as I can tell, doing better at the end of one year, and lower disability rates, lower likely to be like still depressed. Mm-hmm. So there is actually a considerable worry that you can dig out from the medical literature that antidepressants over the long term are depressogenic agents, they they can induce something called tardive dysphoria, which is a low level sort of depression that becomes persistent and chronic. Mm -hmm. Now, so what I believe is this, I believe in informed consent, I believe drugs have a place, but I don't believe they have the, I believe the the way they're used now, uh, where you sort of can go on the drugs very easily, you don't Mm -hmm. have to be so, that opens a change into you. And now all of a sudden you can be come down a path for many people of lifelong drug use or long-term drug use. And everything science is telling us is that long-term drug use can often turn quite problematic. So I believe if we have, this is a great question. You guys are asking great questions. <laughs> this, this, what I believe is that, first of all, medicine should be based on informed consent. Part of the informed consent when I go to my doctor should be, well, do I have any worry long term. What data is there? And what's this going to do to my brain is going to change my brain because it will change your brain. So you need informed consent with the individual and then society as a whole now, it's 2016, we've been down this path for 36 years. And every society that has gone down this path has seen an explosion in the burden of mental illness. So as a society maybe we need to rethink it.
0: Mm -hmm. And
2: I think we need to rethink it along a thing of like, A, Do human beings actually have an incredible resilience, a capacity to recover from difficult depressive episodes? The answer is yes, Mm -hmm. you need to remember that. Mm -hmm. Then you need to figure out, well, how do you really build on that natural capacity? And experimental efforts that try to uh, reframe the environment for people, help them eat better, exercise better, get in better social environments. Sometimes uh, I know some ADHD programs where they just change the school environment those can be sort of um, very sort of helpful responses. And so instead of just relying on the drug, we should really think about these more holistic things. And I think if we had that paradigm of care, we could figure out how to use the drug as more of a tool, a crutch, short-term, see who may, and and, and really around this idea, which is actually a mainstream medical value. Drugs, you should use them for the shortest time possible and you also need to figure out for whom and for how long. Right. Yeah. And that says they have mm-hmm. a place, but that's very different from just put people on drugs and if it doesn't work, put them on a second drug, a third drug, mm-hmm. and don't have an exit door. Right,
1: yeah, definitely. Well, these are fascinating insights. Thank you so much. We're approaching the end of our time, so we'd kind of just like to shift the focus really quickly to ask you our concluding question that we like to ask every speaker who joins us. So we were just kind of wondering, What's your personal definition of success? And perhaps what advice you could give to college students like us in defining success for themselves and ourselves?
0: It <laughs> was a bit of a shift,
1: my no, It was a big that's shift. That's a great but... question, that's a great question. But we'd love to hear no, your take on it. No, that's a great
2: question. You know, um, you asked for my personal definition of success. Yeah. Not a societal definition of success, no. right? My personal def- definition of success is finding a a way of life where you're curious Mm -hmm. if you have a a way of life that uh, you know enables curiosity that's fantastic so find something that is will help you remain a curious human being you have an opportunity now to just explore curiosity now it's unbelievably good and so often you get shunted into things where you're supposed to chase money and it's as if you know things for certain. You know what I mean? You're the experts. Mm -hmm. All I can say is remaining a curious individual is unbelievably joyful. Now it doesn't always... It's not the way to money sometimes, (laughs) but it's unbelievably joyful where you're learning new things. And then I think if you can feel within yourself that um, there's something meaningful about what you do. In some ways, what you're doing is meaningful to... Maybe it's a small group. Maybe it's the society as a whole. Maybe it's a social justice thing. But that it's not just a job where it benefits, you know, that you're, you're earning money and you're building sort of a uh, nice life. So I, I guess for me, a success is about remaining curious, remaining adventuresome. Uh, don't be afraid to fail. Failure is really good for you. <laughs> and... Um, um, try try to have a sense of meaning with what you do meaning can come in so many different ways Mm -hmm. you know there's no clear thing so that's what I think
0: absolutely perfect
1: well thank you you're welcome Um, so unfortunately that is all the time we have but we just wanted to thank you again Bob for joining us and to all the listeners out there remember to stay hungry